Greetings in Jesus' name. I do like the emphasis this morning about coming. Where Neil had uh, about the prayer and coming to the throne of grace and then Joshua mentioning that it's the most important that we come. Come to thee. And uh, you can turn to First Peter again. We'll continue in that book study. I was thinking of when Peter, after he denied the Lord and then the Lord resurrected, and um, seemed like Peter was maybe a little disoriented, so Peter said one day to his disciples, let's go fishing. So they went fishing and it didn't go well for them. His old occupation, it just seemed like whatever, it doesn't, didn't work. Then the Lord came walking on the water, and not on the shore, and uh, said, uh, but they forget all that happened. Anyhow, had this meal there, and then uh, the disciples came in, they ate with the Lord Jesus, and then Jesus talked to Peter, and in a sense reinstated him. Peter had denied him three times. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter was not as certain as he was before. Because <laughs> uh, Peter, Jesus asked him, do you agape me? That's the, the, the term he used. And Peter said, I filial you. I have a brotherly, uh, I have a fraternity infinity for you. Uh, it seems like he no longer had that. There was something gone in Peter. Something was gone in Peter. But Jesus was reinstating him, and, and after he uh, Peter answered a question, Jesus then asked the question three times. Peter, Jesus told Peter three times, "Feed my lambs, and feed my sheep." <laughs> Peter got a charge. Now with a new kind of heart, now he had a charge to feed. And that's what we're reading here this morning as we're going through the first epistle of Peter, is Peter feeding his sheep. The first chapter could be, some people have categorized it in three different headings, hope, holiness, and harmony. The first 13 verses have a lot to do with hope. What the Lord Jesus has come in. Beginning of the letter focused a lot of the glory that is still to come for the Christian. And because Jesus is talking, not Jesus, Peter is talking to persecuted people. They needed hope. And I don't know where you're at this morning. You're probably not persecuted. You're probably not had your stuff taken from you or family members missing. But I would dare guess that you are going through various trials. <laughs> so we can put ourselves in here. As Peter starts feeding his sheep, he wanted to make sure that his sheep have a lot of hope. There's a lot more coming. And so he emphasizes the first part of his letter on the glory that's still to come. He has a few verses like this. Its abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Because, and he knew that people can go through a lot if they have hope. If you have hope, you can go through things. Now hope, if it means anything, if words mean anything, hope means expecting or anticipating something desirable that you in the future that you don't have yet. That's hope. You actually don't have it, but you are anticipating it. That's hope, and you need that. We need that. Uh, Job was that righteous man that just about lost hope. <laughs> a few verses out of Job, he talked about his nights, and I don't know, maybe there's a few that were here like this this week. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be gone? I am full of tossings to and fro until the dawning of the day. And it talks about his own experience. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. He was pretty low. But he hadn't lost hope because you know what he said later on, don't you? You know what Job said later on, don't you? He said, For... I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon this earth, and that after my skin worms, in other words, after his body is decomposed, I in my flesh, I am going to see God in my flesh. <laughs> that was the hope that Job had that kept him going when it was hopeless in his experience. Paul does a lot of hope about hope too, and we don't have to turn there, but in, in, in Romans 8, he talks about, he says, I reckon the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. That shall be revealed in us. And then he talked about the earnest expectation of the creature that's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. There's an earnest expectation of not just us as create as, as creatures as people but he talks about all a creation groaning and waiting and and he says and he gives a definition of hope for we are saved by hope but hope that is seen is not hope if you see it it's no longer hope for what a man seeth what does he yet hope for but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So no matter what your experience has been this week, whatever it has been, there's a hope as a child of God. There's a hope that remains. Because <coughs> hopelessness is a horrible, horrible place to be in. I don't know. When I put my hand up, had you ever been in a, had you ever felt hopeless? 
Hopelessness is what drives suicide. Hopelessness is what drives where, yeah. It's draining and destructive. We do better in everything if we are hopeful. So how is your hope this morning? So close to Peter's heart was his concern for the believer's hope and glory and joy. That was close to his heart. So he spent the entire first part of his letter emphasizing this hope. Actually, he does it throughout, scattered throughout the letter. Then close alongside that concern for their hope was his concern for their holiness. And there's a reason for that. Because heavenly hope and joy has a context. And I, and I, I, I emphasize hopelessness that we all experience, humanity in general experience hopelessness, but hope and joy is actually a human condition. It's not just a Christian condition. I, I'll just hear me out. We are actually wired, internally wired for hope and anticipation. And people anticipate a lot of things. I'm at work. People anticipate payday. They anticipate vacation. I know some people who anticipate getting a driver's license or marriage or family or retirement or paying off the mortgage or buying a church building. <laughs> We're wired for hope and anticipation. Uh, that's a human condition. And, and when, when you actually have some anticipation, there's, there's actually hormones that go on inside of us. And you, some of your biological people know this, the serotonin and the, um, the, Dopamine and uh, oxytocin and, uh, you know, where there's hormones get activated inside of people when they're hopeful and when they actually experience some kind of anticipation. And, and they affect our heart rate, they affect our mood, they affect our feelings. It's a biological means by which you experience life. And that's everyone from infancy to old age. We experience life through these biological hormones. But the re- where I'm going at with this is that the hope that Peter is talking about has a context. It has a context. It's not just any life. It's not hope about payday. Well, in, in one sense it is, but not about your dollars and cents. Peter is talking in the context of obedient children. Actually, why don't we read, I neglected to read the passage we're actually going to study this morning. Uh, Reading verse 14 to 21. Let's read uh, this context here. As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so you be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 
because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who, without respect of persons, judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was aforedained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. The next, the next portion, the rest of the chapter then would come into the harmony section. This is the holiness section still. So, Paul, uh, Peter is addressing the uh, context is as obedient children. This hope is in the context of obedient children. So all the future hope and glory that he's talking about is in the context of you as an obedient child. And that's where holiness comes in. Outside this context of an obedient child, all hope and all joy that anyone experiences is going to be temporal. It's going to be fleeting. It's going to pass. That payday will pass. That vacation will pass. That retirement will pass. Everything will pass. And and I want us to mark this down. Non-obedient children, whatever hope they have, it will perish with them. It's one of Paul's signature statements. Be not deceived. <laughs> you can mark this one down. Don't be deceived into thinking there's any lasting hope outside the Lord Jesus Christ and its accompanying dedication of following him. So everything Peter talks about hope and joy is in that context. I think I'm going to read a few verses in Titus. Don't turn there. Titus 2.13. I'm not going to abbreviate it, but I'm going to get the germ out of this context, out of this passage here. Because it talks about hope. It talks about holiness. Titus 2.13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's again the hope. Who gave him for us that, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Always connected. That hope is always connected to that holiness. So we asked the question, well, what is an obedient child? Well, an obedient child is not a perfect child. An obedient child is not a super child. Have you ever heard about the super mom? I'll describe to you the super mom. The super mom can cook three nutritious meals every day. Um, she can keep the house spotless. She can homeschool five children while she has three toddlers and infants. 
well. Um, she can grow her own food in the garden. She can minister to the sisters at church. She can keep her husband happy. And she can have an occasional several hours free time to read a book. <laughs> a super mom. That's, there's no person like that. It's, it's not reality. It's unrealistic. And I guess we need to be careful when we talk about obedient children that we don't have an unrealistic uh, understanding of what an obedient child is. Obedient child is not a super child. An obedient child doesn't always feel obedient. An obedient child does not always live out his own ideals. I don't. And I don't think you do either. Uh, let alone others' ideals for me. <laughs> I don't live them either. Obedient children fail. They actually mess up. But if they're not super children, what are they? Well, you as parents, you as parents know an obedient child when you have one. You know it. You don't have a perfect child, but you know an obedient child when you have one. And you also know when you don't have an obedient child. As God's child, an obedient child, they take their place under him. He is their loving father. They have this relationship with him. Their heart is open to his direction. And they obey him. They do. But they are grieved when they fail him. An obedient child loves what the father loves and they hate what the father hates. Their obedience, and I, I want to emphasize this, their obedience, while it is not perfect, their obedience is consistent and it is persistent and it is pervasive. <laughs> Three words. Consistent, persistent, and pervasive, not perfect. That is an obedient child. And the hope and the joy and the expectation of a positive future is in this context of this holiness. It's called here as obedient children, and that is not a vain hope. That is a hope we can take to the bank, take to heaven with us. I'll look a little bit more at the anatomy of this obedient child. Let's actually look at some of the inner workings of how that works. And you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. I brushed on this verses a little bit on the last message, I think. But I want to go a little more detail because it fits in here. Uh, the title of my message is, What Does Fear Have to Do with Holiness? Because <laughs> we're going to be talking more about fear as we go on, and it comes out in this context here. 
What does fear have to do with holiness? Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, some people have interpreted verse 12 as is to mean that we are saved by our works. That work out your salvation with fear and trembling and you get the idea if you're, if you're sort of in a works-based mentality, you're thinking, well, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I make it. I hope I'm pleasing God. I hope and I hope to make it. Verse 13 actually explains verse 12. He actually gives us the principle of this salvation in reverse order. So, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, then know verse 13. Verse 13 is where you are at. And I, what, what does verse 13 say? It says, God is working in you. And I want you to know, if you are a Christian this morning, then mark this down. God is working in you. If the scripture is true, God is working in you. As Stanley Sensnick, as you were there at the evening of um, the Youth Inspiration, Dan Stanley Sensnick had a message where he just really emphasized that the third person of the Trinity is living inside of you. <laughs> he emphasized that and made that a, point, a main point of his message. And so, God is in you. He is working in you. God is a living God. He is a moving God. He is a working God, and he's working inside of you and me. Now, what is he working? Well, he tells us here. He is working by giving us the will or the desire to do his good pleasure. And he is also working to give us the power to do it. So if you're a Christian, God is in you, and he's working in you so that you will have a will, you will have a desire and the ability to perform what pleases God. You have, you have, the, you have the desire and you have the ability to do what pleases God. And you say, well, that's great. I mean, now that we have it made and we have made it, that's the end of the story. That's what, I mean, if, if that is true, what's, what's this fear and trembling about? If God is working in me and he has given me the right desires and he's given me the ability to do them, that should be the end of the story. But the, the problem is we're not in heaven yet and we have these conflicting and opposing wills and desires. So we're, we're still living in hope. That's exactly what we are. We have not yet received. We're actually not out of the, out of the, uh, we have been delivered from the power of sin, but not from the presence of sin. So, and that's what Romans 8 says, now hope that is seen is not hope. So we, we still are hoping for something in the future. So, 
as obedient children, as obedient children, there's something we do have and there's something we do not have. And it's a realize we have both of these. We have, I said, how does mean you do not have? I mean, that these truths are both true. <laughs> you can't have something you don't have, right? But these, it's important to realize these are both true. We do have God working inside of us, giving us the will, giving us the desire, and giving us the power to do his will. We do have that. And we need to, you need, we need to realize that. I think John said this morning when we, um, when we fail the grace of God, it wasn't God that failed. We had to have it. So we do have that. But we also have this. We do not have that in the absence of struggle and conflict and opposition. It's these two things that are the occasion for both the living hope that we have, the living hope that we have, and the directive to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We'll talk more about the fear and trembling later, but let me give you a, a couple illustrations that I'm trying to paint in our pictures. Imagine a child wants to uh, enter a contest to see who can color a picture the nicest. So they're they're giving they're given this picture to color, but it's not finished yet. It's like it's one of those connect the dot pictures. So before they can color the picture, before they can actually fill it out, they actually have to finish the picture, so to speak. And all, the child has all the resources needed to do it. There's nothing lacking. The picture has all the aspects that is needed to, uh, to actually get it completed and made it very, very, very pretty. It's all there, but it has to be done carefully by the child. Another illustration I thought of is a math problem. You're given a math problem, and you're given all the facts you need, but you're not given the solution, and you have to have to work it out. I'm going to give you one math problem right now. Let's imagine there are five people at a party, and everybody shakes let me see if I get this right. Everyone shakes hands one time with all the other party goers. How many handshakes have occurred? And I give you a hint. It's not 25. It's not even close. <laughs> it's You have all the information, but you have to have to work it out to get it correct. And the number of steps. In a similar way, we have all the resources needed in being obedient children of God. Now, let the math problem go for later. We can discuss that over lunchtime. <laughs> God is inside of us, and he's working inside of us. And he is gracing us with right desires. And as we follow those desires, he will work the ability to fulfill those his desires. We have that. So, what what is this fear and trembling about? Peter said that Paul's writings are sometimes hard to be understood. 
Is this one of those things that's hard for him to understand? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is that one of those hard ones to be understood? Well, turn back to Peter. First Peter, where uh, we're done with uh, Paul here. But Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Peter says, let's go back to it. Pass your time of your pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So, which one is clear, Paul or Peter, when it comes to the fear thing? Which one do you think is more clear? <laughs> What's your analysis? I don't know. I give them a tie. Both, they both are laying upon God's obedient children. As those that are beloved of the Father, a sense of seriousness. A seriousness of our calling as a part of God's family. You see, Peter has his context here. Paul, Paul has his context. He got, just got done talking in Philippians chapter 2 where he talked about, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he talked about Christ's humility and then Christ's exaltation. And then he then he says, you know, now now you go work that out too. That's basically what he's saying, and work that out in fear and trembling. And so Paul had that context, work it out. Now we're going to look at Peter's context for the rest of the morning. Uh, in the last message, we had looked at it partially. In verse seventeen, when I had uh, the title of God's judgment of Mennonites. Pass your time of your journey here in fear because our every deed and thought and motive will be judged by God. Remember that for those that you were here. And he, and he has a few verses, uh, Paul has actually. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone must give an account of himself to God. And I stress that this is not the great white throne judgment. This is not, this is not the judgment where the lost will hear their doom and be banished from God. It's like a company banquet, if you want to put it that way. At a p- company banquet, you don't go there fearing that you're going to get the pink slip and get fired. You don't get fired at company banquets. If you're at the company banquet, you've made it, okay? And a company banquet, they might give awards and recognitions and things like that, but you don't get fired, and it's not an exact parallel, but it gives you an idea that God's in-house judgment is going to be much more enormously thorough and precise than a company banquet, but it will be a little bit like that. So, and then, and so part of the fear is the recognition. It is Peter's context of this fear. It's the recognition that our our precious metals of our life and our wood, hay, and stubble, stubble is going to be separated, and there's going to be a loss of anything that doesn't pass the test of purity. won't go through the fire. So that's one reason, because the potential of loss is so great, so real, we are to be constantly aware of our accountability to God. But in verse 18 now, we actually have another reason. 
why we are to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. And he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter says, for as much as ye know. Paul is famous for his statements, don't you know? (laughs) But here Peter is saying, here is something you know. Here's something you know. You know that you were redeemed. Someone paid a price for you to set you free from some kind of enemy or bondage. And the question that you would ask, well, who or what were we redeemed from? And the normal answer is we were redeemed from the clutches of the devil. We were redeemed from that bondage that we were in. And Matthew 12, 29 makes it so clearly when Jesus is giving the example after he, after he cast the devil out and they were saying, no, you're, 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 you're doing something wrong here. He just said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? Then he will spoil his house. Jesus bound the devil and he plundered his goods, meaning he delivered us. But what redemption is Peter speaking of in this context? He is saying you were redeemed from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That's the context of redemption here, right here. So we'll look at his redemption in context. And I was thinking that, okay, so we have we have probably four generations here. Does each generation receive a tradition from their fathers that's vain? <laughs> do we does every generation need to reinvent the wheel? What do you young people think? Do you think you're getting a vain tradition from us? What do we think about what we got from our parents? <laughs> hey. Well, let's look in context. Paul's audience, Paul, Peter's audience was mostly Jewish here. He is the apostle to the Jews. And the Jews had a strong tradition based on Old Testament law. And that tradition did not take into account the Messiah's coming. The Jewish people... Uh, the majority of them did not accept, did not recognize or want to recognize the Messiah when he came, and they remained stuck in the old covenant. They did not receive the new covenant. And basically, they, the, the t- tradition that they received, that they would have gotten from their fathers, did not include those Philippians chapter 2 of God working inside of you. That's the new covenant. God working inside of you is the new covenant. And any religion and any belief system and any practice that does not possess the God working inside of you, as we looked at, is a vain tradition. It's an empty 
tradition, it's a vain conversation. It's an empty way of life because it is powerless and it is worthless. It's an empty tradition. I want you to understand what, what the context is here. This vain tradition lacks the God inside of you, working inside of you part. The new covenant. See, in this passage, it's crouched the clear reason for Jesus' coming. He, um, and what he accomplished. He, he delivered humanity from the old covenant way of life and introduced to the world the new covenant. The era of the Holy Spirit. And this new covenant is the gospel. This is the gospel. This new covenant as faith, repentance, forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the resultant righteousness in life, and the assurance of eternity with God is all here. It's the gospel. It's all here. <clears throat> and Peter says, you were redeemed. You were redeemed from that old way of life. Now he comes, uh, comes, but uh, then he gives a contrast. And I don't know if I if I can get it as clear. There's a little bit of lack of clarity in my own mind exactly, but I'm going to shoot for it. He he makes a contrast between silver and gold. Um, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So he's contrasting. Silver and gold with Christ's blood. Um, if you want to buy something that's very valuable or very expensive, you would need to give something very valuable and very expensive in exchange. That, that's, that's how that is, if you want to purchase something. <clears throat> so the, the precious metals, uh, nowadays I guess they have more precious metals than gold, I platinum and I don't know what other things they have, but silver and gold are precious metals. They are mediums of exchange. They are almost indestructible as far as, well, I don't, I don't know that much about, that's not biology, that is, what is it called? <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> okay, that's chemistry. But they are precious metals. And, and in Peter's day, what is more precious than silver and gold? But in this case, silver and gold don't cut it. They don't come close to buying redemption. Now, I'm going to give a personal testimony. I was a child, a child, youth, young teens, somewhere in that area where I was lost and I knew I was lost and I was afraid. I was afraid to die. And I, and when you're in that kind of situation, lots of things go through your mind. And one of the things that went through my mind is if, if I could pay a million dollars and know that I would have assurance of salvation, I would do it. 
I would go for it. I would, I would work and work my life to pay that just to know because of the guilt and all the things that I was going through. And it's one of my processes that, uh, that went through my mind as a, as a, as a young teen. Assurance of salvation, uh, the, something to relieve the guilt and the fear of judgment. Was that real? That I would do it. But that's not how it's received, is it? You can't do it that way. In fact, silver and gold will not buy you salvation. It can. <clears throat> but the, the thing is, it's already been paid. <laughs> you actually don't need to pay it. It's already been paid, but it's not been paid with silver and gold. It's been paid by the lifeblood of God's only son. It's that precious blood that cost Jesus his life. And Jesus' blood is precious. And now we're going uh, in the part of the comparison between gold and silver and gold, which is precious in its own realm. Okay, it's precious in its own realm. But when it comes to this, there is no comparison. I mean, you, they just are that far apart. Well, let me, let me give you this illustration, the difference in preciousness. This might be a valid, valid illustration. We can buy maple syrup at the store for probably $50 a gallon. That's pretty much money for a gallon of stuff. But we, we have bought that and we have used maple syrup. But then we can also tap our own maple trees and get the sap, collect the sap, keep it cold, and then boil it down and making sure it doesn't get burned and finally getting it just right. And then it has its own personal flavor. That stuff is more precious to us than that stuff out there. If you get a little jar of maple syrup from our homemade maple syrup, you will know it's more precious. It meant more to us than that what we would buy in a store and give to you. It's uh, it's it's more precious. It's more precious because it costs us more. It costs time. It costs effort and so on. But Jesus' blood is also precious because it costs a lot more. <clears throat> it's precious because it's the price of our salvation. It's Precious because it has redeeming power. In other words, it is that blood which pulls us out of the clutches of the devil. Nothing else would have done it. It's precious because it's atoning power. Now that we have the blood of Jesus, I do not have to be afraid to stand before God. Like I was when I thought I'm going to have to spend money or there would be some way. But I have the blood. That blood is precious because I can now, I'm at one with God. It's precious because it has cleansing power. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That means not only the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. It's precious because it opened up the way into the presence of God. And there we, there we have that verse. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he has consecrated for us. So, we have Peter contrasting 
gold and silver. No, no, no. You weren't redeemed with gold and silver. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. Now let's go back to the fear and trembling in context here. If we have been purchased at so great a price and have been provided with so great a provision, what does that say about us if we don't appreciate it very well or if we don't value it very much? If we are lackadaisical, if we are half-hearted, if we are lukewarm about our relationship with God and our adherence towards his word and his spirit, he has redeemed us. He has given his lifeblood. If we get caught up in other things rather than the things that God directs us toward, if we place undue value on things that God doesn't value, or if we turn away. In other words, pass your sojourning here in fear. Because where much is given, much is required. And we have been given much. You know, the letter to Hebrews have many warnings to the Christians. And actually deals directly with this, with this thought of the Hebrews, uh, as a, as a, as a, again, those are the Jews, which they, they just, believed in the Lord Jesus against all odds, and they faced it, and then the Jewish religion just kept on going, and they're wondering, well, should we, huh? Well, this is a long road, and they're, and all that. And there are warnings given. No, no, no. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that you have agreed to, and you, I mean, that you've received. And, well, let's read it here. So, let's read here. Um, Hebrews 10. You don't have to turn, but... There are very familiar, often quoted passages here at the beginning of my passage here that I'm going to read. Let us consider one another to provoke unto loving good works. Now, I wonder why. <laughs> For the very reason we're talking about. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, there's, there's some direction given to God's people. Keep on getting together. Keep on provoking. Speak into each other's lives. And there's a reason. There's a reason he's doing that. So, we're talking about the preciousness of Jesus' blood, and we're talking about what happens if we don't actually appreciate it properly. So, let's keep on reading. For if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sorer of how much sorer punishment suppose ye should he be thought worthy? who had trodden underfoot the Son of God, and had counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath 
done despite unto the spirit of grace. For we know him that saith, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it almost seems like that is a little bit of overkill of where Peter is at. It's very, very strong. It's almost like someone is leaving the Lord. And yet, the element of fear, pass your sojourning here in fear because you're going to be held accountable for everything you do and you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. And that precious blood, you cannot, you cannot tread lightly about. What it does what it means, the, what the cost it has, and its, its impact and all its things have to be taken seriously. Because greater privilege, the new covenant which has greater privilege brings the greater responsibility. God working in us, this is unparalleled privilege. It is coupled with a call to walk that out carefully, even with fear and trembling. So youth, and I was thinking of the message this morning, I, I, I'm lacking a lot in practicality. Uh, this is my feeble attempt to some practicality. <laughs> youth, with your energy and zeal and ambition or uh, a desire for adventure and excitement and exploration, I mean, your life is ahead of you, remember... This settled truth of, 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 of walking with the Lord and working inside of you, but walking carefully. In your middle age, with your desire for acquisition, for advancement, for prominence, for maybe self-aggrandized, aggrandizement, Remember godly fear. And for older people, with your desire for comfort, for security, and for ease, remember the coming accountability of your motives. <clears throat> the last two verses here, which I'm not, not going to speak much on here, verses 20 and 21, talking about the Lord Jesus and his precious blood. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, you who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and your hope might be in God. Now, I have spent quite a bit of time this morning on a negative side, and I want to end the message on a positive side. Um, I want to do a little bit of an analysis of a song that I love that just has, has this... Is, that, is this song actually in our book, Years Are Spent in Vanity and Pride? Is that song in our book? Um, maybe I should... 
671. I like to actually go through this book. This, uh, that song, and you can turn there. There's one thing missing in this song. It's the entire thing about fear. <laughs> but I, I've emphasized fear. Now I want to focus on the positive side of the Christian life here. And I just want to have an analysis of this song here. And I thought it would be a good way to close out the message. This is the ideal. So verse, verse 1 is when we were dead in our sins. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary, dead in our sins. Verse 2. By God's word at last my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Here is the conviction of sin and the, and the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, when we talk about a crisis salvation, we're talking about a crisis happening in someone's life of that conviction of sin, the guilt, and all those things, and then finally coming into having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Till my guilty soul imploring turn to Calvary and that person got saved. That's the salvation. Verse 3. This is the verse of the obedient child. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. That is the result of salvation, that obedience. And now verse 4. We did not speak about it all this morning. Verse 4 is an essential, essential part of a child of God. Because I, I talked a lot about fear. I talked about trembling. I talked about that thing, and I want to I see oh, the, the Christian life is morose. It's, it's, no, it's not. There's that element is there, but it has to be in its place. Verse 4 is beyond obedience. It is worship. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So lest I be considered negative, I want us to know worship is the end goal even of an obedient child of God. And so we have hope, then we have holiness, and probably the next message will go on to harmony, which is will probably get more practical. Let us if you can let us kneel for prayer. Yes, our Lord, Father, thank you, Lord, as we have looked into your word again and seen the mighty, mighty acts that you have done, the provision you have made, the, uh, the way you have reached out to us, the hope that you have given to us, 
the love that you have extended to us. Lord, we want to worship you. We do worship you. Lord, and we do worship you with our lives. We do worship you with obedience. And we do worship you with sharing about the gospel to others because, Lord, it has done this to us. It has meant so much for us. Lord, I pray for each one of us here. I pray each one of us can have the proper perspective of hope and holiness, Lord, and fear and worship. Lord, they're all true. Help us, Lord, not to get waylaid by one or the other, to understand it in context, in perspective. Help us to recognize that you are working inside of us, that it is your will that we please you, and that you have given to us the grace, the power, the desire, everything we need to please you. And help us to do that with carefulness and fear that we not fail thee. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these words. Thank you, Lord, for Peter and what he has, what he has expended. We have no idea what he went through to pen these words. But, Lord, we thank you for inspiring him to that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.